podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To find out more, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. second session of the public seminar series on the Common European Asylum System. Um, both Jean-Francois, who regrettably could not be here today, and myself are very happy to have Dr. Hilbatha with us today. Um, Maria Teresa is a lecturer in law at Newcastle University, where she's teaching public international law, European law, and human rights. She's also a research associate at the Refugee Studies Center and a member of the Spanish Bar Council. Previously, she was a lecturer in international refugee and uh, human rights law here in Oxford, as well as the director of the Summer School in Forced Migration. She's also a consultant to various organizations, including the UNHCR, the Council of Europe, and the European institutions. She has published widely in the fields of refugee law and international human rights law, and one um, of her most influential analysis is the one she does on the right to be granted asylum under European law, which is very influential and widely cited. But today she's going to actually analyze some of the other very important notions of international refugee law, which is the safe third country concept, and how this notion was actually um, systematized in, in EU law and international refugee law. And she will pay particular attention to how this notion was systematized in the Dublin regulation, which is now currently under discussion. It might be reformed in the following months. So if you're ready, Maria Teresa, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Violeta, and thanks everyone uh, for being here uh, this evening. I'm very happy to be back at the IRC. It's always a great opportunity uh, to present work in progress and to get your feedback on, on the issues that I will be considering. What I will be talking about today um, is the future of international cooperation on refugee protection. Um, and as I was preparing this paper, I realized that I am not all that sure there is a future to international cooperation on protection as such, but rather international cooperation as it emerges from the practice of a state seems to be more concerned with um, burden shifting than burden sharing, as we know. So um, I wanted to start by um, having a look at the past. If we want to discuss the future, we need to um, look a little bit at where things are coming from. And also um, to see as well the praxis of some selected states uh, that I have looked into recently in the context of uh, last year's UNHCR's um, expert meetings on the 60th anniversary of the Refugee Convention. So I will examine a little bit how the uh, safer country concept that is at the bottom of interstate agreements and state practice uh, it's been uh, developed in law and policy in selected countries. I will look at the US-Canada agreement. I will look at the newly adopted legislation in South Africa, just passed last year. And I will look more in detail at the case of the European Union, uh, exemplified um, in the case of Spain as one of the countries that monitors the southern borders of the European Union. 
And then, of course, I shall look at the case of NS, um, the uh, leading case at the moment, or the test case, on the Dublin system uh, in the context of the European Union that was uh, decided by the Court of Justice of the European Union in December last year. So, as I was saying, any attempt to examine the future of international cooperation requires um, taking a look at the past. When the international regime for the protection of refugees was born in the early 20th century, it was precisely driven by the needs of the states to work together and to manage a situation of individuals seeking protection across borders. Of course, individuals moving for protection reasons across borders was not new. What was new was the context where it took place. The disappearance of the former empires and the birth of nation-states, coupled with the enactment of the passport regime with general validity, turned refugee movements into a matter of concern for the international community. The 1933 Convention on the Status of Refugees that only had five state parties at the time, and I will read them to you because I think they're interesting. Belgium, Bulgaria, Egypt, France and Norway. These were the five states at the time <coughs> that enacted um, the first status for refugees, the predecessor of the United Nations um, Refugee Convention that, if I'm not mistaken, currently has 147 state parties, either to the Convention and or its 1967 protocol. The 1933 convention at the time already referred to the covenant of the League of Nations, the predecessor of the United Nations, and its provision referring to the need or to the purpose of the League of Nations to promote international cooperation by the maintenance of justice. And it is, seems to me that it is this element of justice that we have lost in the United Nations era. At the time as well, the 1933 Convention also referred to the uh, established Nansen International Office for Refugees, the agency, uh, the predecessor of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and therefore the two elements of the international protection regime were already present there. An agreement between the states under the authority of the international community, the League of Nations at the time, the United Nations now, and an agency to manage, to monitor, to implement the actual cooperation of states. Today, in the United Nations system, international cooperation remains a necessary requirement for the adequate fulfillment of states' obligations towards refugees. The preamble of the Refugee Convention acknowledges that the grant of asylum, and I insist on that, it's the grant of asylum that the Refugee Convention refers to, and not just the recognition of refugee status. Therefore, um, asylum is about protection, it's a broader concept. The grant of asylum, the Convention preamble says, may place unduly heavy burdens on certain <coughs> countries, and it therefore acknowledges that a satisfactory <coughs> solution of a problem of which the United Nations has recognized its international scope and nature cannot therefore be achieved without international cooperation. Accordingly, the conference of plenipotentiaries that drafted the UN Refugee Convention also included a plea in Recommendation D that governments continue to receive refugees in their territories and that they act 
in concept, in a true spirit of international cooperation, in order that these refugees may find asylum and the possibility of resettlement. Despite the long-standing recognition of international cooperation as a necessary prerequisite for the satisfactory solution to the plight of refugees, its actual implementation remains one of the most controversial issues in refugee protection. The most sophisticated mechanism by states to embody this principle that is currently contained in the so-called Dublin II regulation that I shall look at uh, later on in a bit more detail has been subject to scrutiny from the very beginning, both by domestic courts as well as by international courts, notably the European Court of Human Rights and the Court of Justice of the European Union. The only consensus among all actors involved seems to be its unsatisfactory performance and its continuous need for reform. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is the fourth or fifth instrument on the same exact matter that European Union member states are negotiating at the moment. The European Parliament is now negotiating this recast Dublin um, Third Regulation, and it has already found political agreement by the Council of the European Union. This is by governments of the member states. So the governmental layer of adoption has already gone through, and now we are um, expecting the European Parliament to finalise um, its own work on the matter and it is likely that a new legal instrument will therefore be available. This new Dublin Third Regulation will need to provide an appropriate response to the Member States' obligations of protection in the context of international cooperation, which goes beyond the European Union framework. And it will need to incorporate, or at least to take account, of the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights in the case of MSS versus Belgium and Greece, decided in January 2011, and the decision by the Court of Justice of the European Union in the case of NS, decided on the 21st of December 2011. So two landmark cases decided by the two European courts last year that actually address the presumption of safety among European Union member states for the purposes of uh, transferring asylum applicants. So I will now move into the practice of states in relation to the safer country concept, which in turn requires um, a critique of the safer country concept itself. The safer country concept and the safe country of origin concept, which sometimes overlap and sometimes um, are or undertake different shapes and forms in the legislation of states, um, were present from the very beginning in the context of discussions on international cooperation. Um, Excom Conclusion 58. Uh, UNHCR Conclusion 58, adopted in 1989, uh, remains today the relevant framework for the examination of the obligations of the states and the underpinning system to the safer country concept and the relations of states in relation to international cooperation. This conclusion addresses the phenomenon of refugees and asylum seekers who move in an irregular manner from countries in which they have already found protection in order to seek asylum or permanent resettlement elsewhere. This idea that states are not obliged to deal with protection needs 
of individuals who have already found protection is the core of the system. But the different um, uh, mechanisms that are developed to implement it uh, have not addressed the primary concern or the core question in the system, which is what constitutes effective protection, what constitutes safety. The defining elements of this phenomenon are, in my view, three. First of all, the movement that states are aiming at addressing does not originate in countries of origin themselves, but rather in countries where protection has already been found. So that is the case of the uh, Dublin Regulation that um, basically establishes a mechanism between European Union member states from one of them only to consider any asylum claim. And that mechanism in practice is um, um, built in a way that states that have the responsibility to allow the entry of the individual into the European Union are therefore also responsible to consider their asylum claims. There are of course other provisions in relation to family, unity and other considerations, humanitarian clause, the sovereignty clause, but in practice uh, the greatest majority of cases are decided on the basis of the state that has the responsibility to control the external borders of the European Union and that it failed to do so. The purpose the second element in the system is that the purpose of the movement is to seek asylum or permanent resettlement in another country. And that this movement is irregular. This movement is not um, sanctioned by the necessary documentation or by an entitlement to stay to enter a state by the receiving country. Therefore, conclusion number 58 does allow for the return of individuals in this situation to the country where they already found protection. Conclusion does not define what protection means. And the inherent tension in the debate is enshrined in this conceptualization of uh, irregular movements of asylum seekers and refugees that already gave rise to divergent positions at the time of the adoption of this conclusion that was expressed by means of interpretative declarations and reservations. It is um, at the time the conclusion was adopted, different member, different states um, expressed their own interpretation of what protection meant, and at that time they referred already to the safer country concept and the safe country of origin concept. It is therefore very difficult for states to articulate concerted interest protection in absence of an agreement among them of what constitutes protection and therefore what eventually would exempt them of their obligations under the Refugee Convention. <coughs> so what are those obligations that a state have and that states cannot um, be accepted from by establishing these interstate cooperation mechanisms? In the context of the European Union, which is the one that I shall be um, mostly focusing on, the whole common European asylum system is based on the presumption of safety of all member states. And it actually goes beyond because it is also set based on the mutual recognition of rejection decisions, which is not mirrored by a mutual recognition of recognition decisions. This is once you are um, an asylum seeker, you reach the European Union territory, you have one chance only of your case being considered under the national legislation of the state responsible. And once that happens, 
you do not get any chance to apply elsewhere. You may, but you will be rejected under the European rules. Therefore, all member states will recognise the rejection decision and will not allow you access to their own national asylum systems. On the contrary, if you're a refugee who has been recognised by a member state, that recognition is not um, automatically accepted by all other member states. Therefore, if you move irregularly to another member state, or if you move in the context of European legislation, uh, most importantly in the context of um, intra-EU extradition agreements, the so-called uh, surrender mechanism of the European Union, that will um, apply automatically, and you are therefore transferred, both as an asylum seeker or as a refugee, you will not carry with you your status as an asylum seeker or as a refugee. And therefore, if the member state of destination does not allow you into the system or does not recognize the status that you have been granted by another member state, you will end up under the general legislation aliens and immigration. And therefore, you may be eventually expelled from the European Union's territory with no consideration of your status despite the fact that you may have the possibility to take your case to the European <coughs> Court of Human Rights, but we will be then um, having an incomplete, imperfect system. Despite the long-standing practice of the states in relation to this concept of, say, third country concept, the increasing sophistication in its practice and the change in legal and political landscapes in which it is applied it's becoming, and more importantly, the way it is becoming a minimum standard of European Union legislation, makes the question about its lawfulness uh, a parentary one. We really need to address the lawfulness of a safer country concept that has existed and has been largely un um, unchallenged. It is regularly accepted, and the debate normally evolves about the requisites, um, the requirements, the necessary conditions under which it can be applied, but it is not challenged in principle. I would argue that on the basis of the legal axiom that to every right there is a corresponding duty, an attempt to identify states' obligations in relation to refugees in the context of say third country removals or transfers. We need, first of all, to look or to identify or agree that the Refugee Convention and other international human rights instruments do entitle individuals to a number of rights in relation to any state party. So all state parties to the Refugee Convention and all state parties to the European Convention of Human Rights and all state parties to other international human rights instruments do have each one of them duties and obligations in relation to any refugee that they would come across. This is not every refugee in the world necessarily, but certainly all those refugees in relation to whom they have um, exercised jurisdiction. And how we define jurisdiction is again a controversial matter. Is it effective power? Is it control? Is it authority? Is it de jure? Is it de facto? Um, does it cover the territory of other countries? Does it cover areas that, um, as a matter of law, uh, are outside the exclusive jurisdiction of any state, like the high seas? 
Uh, all these issues are under consideration and they're being challenged by states and by courts. But the core would be to identify what it is that a state is obliged to the moment that state exercises some form of jurisdiction, however it is defined in relation to the individual in question. I always like to refer in this context to a paper written in 1993, one of those non-papers um, written by Antonio Fortin at the time where he was deputy representative of the UNHCR in the UK. He wrote a legal opinion that never saw the light, challenging the lawfulness of the safer country concept, challenging the notion itself. He wrote that the policy whereby an asylum seeker arriving from a so-called safer country is returned to that country without his substantive claim having been considered is based on the assumption that there is an international principle by virtue of which a person who has left his country of origin in order to escape persecution must apply for recognition of refugee status and or for asylum in the first safe country he has been able to reach. He continues to explain that although the persistent repetition of this assumption has led many to accept it uncritically, the reality is that no such an international principle exists. And indeed, I would agree with that. He explains that refugees are internationally protected persons that are entitled to treatment in accordance with internationally prescribed standards, enshrined not only in the Geneva Convention, but also in other international human rights instruments. Given the declaratory nature of refugee status and considering that recognition of such a status is an absolute precondition for the person to enjoy the internationally prescribed treatment, it should be concluded that a person who fulfills the requirements of Article 1 of the Refugee Convention is entitled to the recognition of that status, and that would be by all state parties of the Refugee Convention. So the suggestion that states parties to the Refugee Convention generally are under no obligation to consider requests for recognition of status made within their jurisdictions appears to be incompatible with the purpose and object of the Convention, which would be rendered meaningless if that were the case. <coughs> Any state party to the Refugee Convention where the individual finds himself or who exercises jurisdiction, if it's not territorial, um, on the basis of any other links, will therefore be obliged in relation to that individual. If this is so, let's have a quick look at the way states have been implementing this principle. Um, if we look at the very or the most recent development in this regard, we would need to look at the legislation adopted last year in South Africa. It is still very soon to know how that legislation will develop. But it is interesting to have a look at the discussions at the time, and especially at the position of the government of South Africa in relation to the amended Section 1 of the Asylum Act. The South African Home Affairs Minister, when questioned about the um, requirement, the so-called advanced passenger processing, which is a hidden safer country uh, rule, um, 
when he was questioned about what it meant, what it would imply effectively for anyone and trying or attempting to enter uh, South Africa, not directly from a country of origin or from the uh, neighboring countries to South Africa, um, in relation to, um, to the application of this provision. The minister, and I quote, said, you must remember international law refers to the safe country an asylum seeker enters. We must ask if we are the safe country because international law regulates this matter. The Department of Home Affairs added to that that the envisaged pre-screening procedure will not be applicable when South Africa is the first safe country of entry from countries of origin. And that would be neighbouring, according to the government, neighbouring countries that South Africa shares borders with. However, it would be applicable when South Africa is not the first safe country of entry from a person's country of origin. If an appeal is lodged, the case will be addressed while the person is not in South Africa. That means that if you're an asylum seeker and you attempt to apply for asylum once you have reached the territory without this clearance, um, you would be rejected. Again, it is very soon to, um, to explain how this is going to work, uh, especially because we're talking about an advanced uh, screening mechanism and not as such a safer country rule. It is interesting to note that um, a few years ago, that rule, that safer country concept, um, was um, adopted as part of an amendment to South African legislation and it was challenged successfully before the courts. Very interestingly, um, the court found that under a settlement with the government, the court managed to have the government agree to withdraw that um, piece of legislation, but also to consult with Lawyers for Human Rights, the NGO that took the case to court, on the terms of any wording of the legislation that in the future the South African government may wish to pursue instead of this circular 95 of the year 2000. So basically, the government committed itself in the year 2000 to consulting with Lawyers for Human Rights and any safer country concept legislation that they may wish to adopt. And in my view, that may explain why uh, the um, build last year did not specifically refer to the concept, despite the fact that the government construes the pre-screening pre uh, mechanism as a, as a way to control access to South African borders by individuals not arriving uh, directly from countries of origin. Uh, the, the Americas, this is a development at African level that of course because it being in South Africa it affects a number of countries and at the time uh, the South African government um, did explain that agreements were underway with Zimbabwe and various other countries to implement effectively the mechanism. In the case of the Americas uh, we have already in agreements between the two North American states, the US and Canada. Um, an agreement that mirrors, but not, it's not identical to the so-called Dublin mechanism in the context of the European Union. It is worth noting that the US uh, does receive 
a significant number of refugees via resettlement. And this is a, a, a specific form of international cooperation that was already envisaged in the Refugee Convention and that I'm not discussing here. So I am looking at um, the ways in which states uh, enact agreements bilaterally or otherwise uh, for the purposes of returning individuals who are considered to have found protection elsewhere. In the case of the US, the legislation uh, also in the, in the year 2000 and onwards, the legislation was amended to include the safer country concept and to allow for a provision that would eventually allow the US government to develop an agreement, uh, in this case with Canada, um, for the purposes of removing an individual to another country for the purposes of processing uh, his or her asylum claim. Under this agreement, uh, there are some serious concerns that arise in the US-Canada agreement in relation to the impact on, other state, on the other state party, notably Canada. The Canadian Council for Refugees um, has um, noted a number of challenges to the practice of, of implementing this agreement. The Canadian Council for Refugees noted that in practice, few asylum seekers moved from Canada to the US. And on the contrary, there was a higher number of asylum seekers moving from the US to Canada to apply for protection. And therefore, according to them, under the agreement, most applicants arriving in Canada at the US border, because of the way the, the agreement is conceived, would be found to be ineligible uh, to receive protection because of the statutory bars, such as the one-year deadline to launch an asylum application and various mm. other um, legislative developments. The case challenging the agreement went through the Canadian uh, courts and the Supreme Court found that it was not unlawful in principle for Canada, it was not unconstitutional <coughs> for Canada to enter into this agreement with the, um, with the US. The agreement established that after one year, um, an analysis and evaluation of its performance would be undertaken. And at that time, the UNHCR expressed concern that while the vast majority of applicants affected by the policy did gain access to the Canadian refugee protection system, they were nevertheless aware of several cases in which applicants were directed back to the US, detained and removed without having had an opportunity to pursue a refugee claim in Canada. So the practice of bouncing asylum seekers back and forth. UNHCR also expressed at that time concern on the adequacy of existing reconsideration procedures, the delays in adjudication of eligibility under the agreement itself, the inadequacy of detention conditions in the US, and generally the lack of resources, communication and training um, of the departments um, concerned. Nevertheless, the agreement is still in place between these two countries. In relation to Spain, the practice, of course being Spanish, I have paid a lot more attention to it, but I don't think I am biased when I say that it really is fascinating. Um, Spain is one of the southern borders of the European Union, and as a matter of European Union law, it is required to monitor or to control those external borders of the Union. Um, Spain has also its own relations with North Africa, uh, notably Morocco, that are not particularly friendly, and therefore, unlike Italy, Malta or Greece, 
that have complained um, because of this position of burden, Spain, to my knowledge, has never made any such claims. Uh, Spain devotes a significant um, budget, I don't know with the current cuts how that's going to happen, but I suspect they will not be cutting much from there, to monitoring um, what happens in Africa and to monitoring any moves, notably from Morocco, um, directed to the European Union, directed to Spain. Uh, it has developed satellite technology as well as a number of sophisticated mechanisms um, carried out by the military, by uh, the Coast Guard and by various um, um, border patrols that operate not only in the territorial waters of Spain but also in the high seas. It has also developed uh, an incredible amount of bilateral agreements with third countries, um, most of them in Africa. Agreements that um, have been criticized by being because of their secrecy, but um, I wouldn't say they're necessarily secret. It's that it does take some skill to find them because they tend not to be um, adopted by um, the government office that you would think of. So you could have a Council of Ministers on Agricultural Issues deciding on 600,000 euros uh, to be allocated to Mauritania for the um, examination of uh, 600 asylum applications of individuals intercepted in the high seas. So you do need to look, and if you do, you will find that those agreements are there, um, and they're published in the official gazette, and you can have access to, to how much money is being it's been shared. Of course, the actual implementation of the agreements and the uh, conversations between the governments, those are a lot more difficult to get hold of. But we do have evidence of, of the practice. Spain is also very interesting because Spain is not a country that has ever had any issues with um, asylum applications. It has never received many asylum applications. In fact, it has produced asylum seekers and refugees for decades until very recently. And already this year, um, in the broader migration context, um, we do have a negative migration figure. This is more Spanish people leave the country than foreigners arrive into the country, which, is, um, which has not been the trend in the last 10 years or so, but has been the trend before then. Nevertheless, Spain has undergone a number of legislative changes over the years, um, increasingly reducing or narrowing down the scope of protection that originally was obviously very um, generous, taking account of its own history. In the context of the state, uh, of the state practice, what is important to note is that uh, Spain um, is not only the government that is implementing this policy, but this seems to be backed or confirmed by the courts. And uh, to my surprise, I have found that in a, in a very notorious case, the so-called Marine One case, um, a ship that was intercepted in, in the high seas with a, a number of would-be immigrants that was eventually returned to uh, Mauritania um, for their cases to be processed. And the greatest majority of those individuals were then removed, um, in theory, with their consent. The UNHCR um, seems to seems to be um, in agreement with the government that there were no protection issues in those cases. But there was a core number of cases in which there were protection issues, and they um, they did not receive access to the asylum procedure in Spain. A substitute to that did take place because the government did send officials to Mauritania to process those claims there. Um, and UNHCR was involved, 
that that is outside the actual system. That is not what the legislation says. That is not what the Constitution would require, or you would think. Because the um, Spanish High Court, the national uh, court with um, uh, jurisdiction to consider uh, not only the, um, the form, but also the merits of any asylum decision case, found that the government indeed was right in rejecting its exercise of jurisdiction in the case because Spain was first acting in the high seas, where, as a matter of international law, no state can claim exclusive jurisdiction, and second, because the examinations of the claims took place in Mauritania, and therefore, if at all, their responsibility would be for Mauritania and not for Spain, that was solely providing the means, technical means and financial means, to another country for the processing of these claims. The case went to the Supreme Court, and uh, unfortunately, it is only in um, uh, decision is only in Spanish, but it is worth reading for um, those of you who can read in Spanish. The Supreme Court said not only it backed the government's view that there was no exercise of jurisdiction, but it also went farther to say that this praxis should be praised because it, its purpose was to comply with international humanitarian obligations to assist individuals. Um, who find themselves in distress at sea. And the, all the Spanish government did was to bring those poor individuals who had capsized in the high seas back to their families and their homes. Without, of course, any, any question as to whether that's what they wanted or whether that's what international law um, required them to do. The case of Spain is interesting because at the same time you examine this practice, this bilateral practice that is outside most often um, the scrutiny of the courts and when it does uh, it receives this backing, although I have to say the case is now pending before the constitutional courts and one would expect perhaps uh, a reversal in, in the decision. But um, it's also interesting to see, and let me see if I can find the figures, yes, that when it comes to the damage system, this is the, the permanent um, established mechanism with other European Union member states uh, with whom the presumption of safety uh, would apply. Um, in 2009, if you look at the figures, Spain lodged 207 requests to other European Union member states for those states to take responsibility to process asylum applications. So only 207 requests. And 173 of them were accepted. So this would mean that in all those 173 cases, um, although the claims were declared inadmissible and were not examined on the merits by Spain, another EU member state had explicitly accepted responsibility to do so in accordance with the terms of the Dublin regulation. So there was a, a decision made by other member states that they would process the applications. However, of those applications, I believe that only a handful of them, and I'm not sure I have the right figure, um, but I believe it's only about 14 that were actually transferred. So um, when I found this figure, I looked a little bit into the practice of other states, and it, it seems to be confirmed that states do manage the process, they run the system, uh, states do agree uh, to take responsibility, but actual transfers do not take place. So if we have a system that is actually very uh, 
um, energy consuming, it takes resources, it costs money, it leaves people in a prolonged situation of delay in the adjudication of their claims and then um, it is not actually implemented. You wonder what the purpose of the system may be. Especially when you see the system challenged before the European Court of Human Rights and before the Court of Justice of the European Union. So if we look in fact at the cases of NS, at the case of NS in the Court of Justice, this case is probably very well known to you. Um, it's the so-called case in the Greece removals. It's a case whereby asylum seeker um, whose responsibility um, was in Greece, so Greece was responsible uh, for this asylum seeker, applied for asylum in the UK. And the UK um, wanted, in application on the Dublin Convention, wanted to remove this person back to Greece. As, as you may know, Greece um, has been found to be in severe violation of its obligations under the European Union asylum system. A number of infringement proceedings, which is the actual legal mechanism that the European Union would have uh, for violations of European legislation, have been launched by the European Commission because of the lack of implementation of European standards on refugee protection. So legal cases were in the process. The European Court of Human Rights found that under the conditions which had already been uh, explained by UNHCR and others, it was not possible for um, member states, in the particular case of the European Court of Human Rights, we're talking about Belgium, to remove individuals back to Greece. In the case of Anes, the Court of Justice of the European Union was asked a much more fundamental question, which is if you cannot remove an individual to the country that is responsible to process its claim, do you have any obligations yourself? or all you are required to do is to tolerate his presence or to keep the person there until the responsible state is in a position to um, examine the claim or do you yourself have any obligations? The court indeed found that in the situation um, of course, the Court of Justice of the European Union would not enter into the specific um, dynamics of the case. It interprets European Union law, but it does not tell um, the UK whether it can or cannot remove a particular applicant to Greece. But the reading of the, of the decision of the court is that the, the court would not be, um, sorry, the UK <coughs> still has an obligation in relation to that individual asylum seeker. And if a reasonable time um, Greece is not in a position to accept its responsibility and make a decision, the UK will have to do it. Therefore, the system that nevertheless is not challenged, the safer country concept, the presumption of safety, which remains not unchallenged, the courts are nevertheless um, developing certain standards that in practice uh, do challenge the feasibility of the system as such. In my view, all state parties, as I have said before, have obligations, all state parties to the Refugee Convention and to um, European Union treaties have obligations in relation to refugees, all of them without exception, insofar uh, the exceptions may not be allowed by the legislation itself. What happens then is that we have two levels of relationships. We have the relationship between the individual and the state, and then we have relationships between states. 
The Dublin system is in fact a system or a mechanism whereby um, the states do agree with each other that those obligations that all of them have will be discharged by one of them only. But the obligation nevertheless exists. And that's the reading that I do of the NS case. The court upholds this principle, which is consistent with general principles of law, <coughs> notably those uh, found in the a tradition of the French administrative law system, whereby the guarantees are there to protect individuals against abuse of power. If you states agree on something and it doesn't work, it is not for the individual to pick up the bill. Therefore, states may nevertheless be allowed to develop those mechanisms, but if Greece is unable to accept the claim, then the UK, the country where the asylum seeker finds himself, is responsible for that particular claim. And this, in my view, is the, uh, the most fundamental uh, outcome of that case, which is to uh, deny the fact that individuals will nevertheless, in this Dublin system, will have to challenge the case in relation to all potential violators of their rights, which was pretty much the, um, the, the position that the UK was upholding. The UK was not saying that it was just okay to send the individual back to Greece, but rather that if Greece was not in a position to deliver, um, uh, remedies would be available to the person there. The asylum seeker could take the case to the European Court of Human Rights against Greece and could take a, a national case that would perhaps eventually be reviewed by the Court of Justice of the European Union itself. Um, and this is what the Court of Justice um, denies. It is not um, that your obligation as the United Kingdom as enshrined in the Refugee Convention in Article 18 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights on the right to be granted asylum and in various other instruments requires that you, United Kingdom, remain responsible until another member state is effectively taking that responsibility from you. So, what about the future? Well, the future seems that, um, it seems to me that the future is not going to be much better than the past or the present. And as long as the state parties to the Refugee Convention do not acknowledge that fundamental obligation um, to recognize the status recognized by other state parties, uh, we're going to have these mechanisms that are costly and inefficient. The European Union um, first agreed rules on this matter within the Schengen Agreement, adopted in 1991. Um, those rules were then incorporated into the Schengen Convention and then they were taken over by the Dublin Regulation and now we are again in the reform of the system. So it is um, about 25 years of legislation on the matter and a very unsatisfactory solution, both from the perspective of principle, as we see in the cases challenged in the courts, but also from the perspective of, of the practice, that when we look at the figures, we see that states do actually not transfer individuals for asylum claims. So when it comes to the European Union, I would propose, in fact, I did propose in a paper that I wrote in 2007, that the European Union, if it wishes to develop this common European asylum system, agrees on internal EU legislation whereby, just like a rejection decision is recognised by all of them, also a recognition decision of status, whether it's refugee status or subsidiary protection, be automatically recognised. 
And this would need to be coupled with a provision on freedom of movement. So if you are an asylum seeker in the UK, um, you make your application there, the UK considers your claim, you get a decision um, by applying, of course, similar standards, and then you get your right to freedom of movement in all European Union member states. Now, the freedom of movement part has already been adopted last year. So if you're a recognized refugee or a person who's been granted subsidiary protection and you acquire long-term resident status, you do then acquire the right of freedom of movement in similar conditions uh, to those of European Union citizens. So you create in that way an intra-European space. So you replicate uh, the uh, situation that you would have within a national jurisdiction at EU level. So these two elements are essential. And a third element would be uh, that the European Union itself becomes a party to um, the relevant international instruments. And a draft agreement already exists for EU accession to the European Convention of Human Rights that was adopted last year, but it's pending, um, it's adoption spending uh, because uh, governments are unable to find political agreement on that actual draft. But the one element that is not even on the table for discussion is that mutual recognition of the status granted or recognized by other member states. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk slash resources slash connect.